0: And speaking with many of you at different points in time throughout the last probably four to six months, it seems that maybe it's our demographic, maybe it's our place, um, uh, location, and the folks that gather here at Redeemer is the shared kind of sense of transition for many, and the thought of graduation has come. Where will I go next? What will I do next? What job offer should I take? And then some other saying, I'm currently employed, seeking another transition, wondering where I will go next. What should I seek? Where should I live? And so on and so forth. All of this reveals to each of us as we consider movements within our life, choices that we are making, reveals our limited understanding. Every time we seek to make a decision, we are immediately reminded Through often the anxiety that attaches to making a decision of significance is our limited understanding, our susceptibility to anxiety and frustration. Life as human beings means living life as those who have to act on the basis of what we know. This in the decision-making process, right? So, you're kind of looking at that job, or you're considering that schooling choice, or you're considering that other movement within your company, or to a different company, or another location of living, so on and so forth. How is it, when it's revealed to you, your limited understanding, yet paired with this, you have to act? What are you to do? Well, how does one act? Well, you must act on the basis of what you know. Oh, there's the frustration again. Because what we know is incomplete. So, indeed, we'll act upon the knowledge that we have, yet we are immediately spun back to understand what we do have in knowledge is incomplete. Then we cycle back to frustration. And it is this conundrum of humanness. That is, every individual in here shares in this what I'm labeling conundrum of being human. And in this conundrum, we must answer the question regularly, and perhaps, as I said to many of you more intensely at this season of your life, answer the question of how to act in ignorance. Ignorance. That is the confession, we as human beings again and again have to act on the basis of what we know, yet what we know is incomplete. Therefore, answering the question of how to act in ignorance is paramount to our living well. One author writes this way, we must learn to start each day with this admission, regarding every person, every bit of creation and circumstance that we encounter today. We must say to ourselves, I am in the dark here. Or, quote, I distort what sits before my eyes. End quote. It is this humanness, this Sense of being in the dark, yet needing to act. This sense of looking at our circumstance, people and places, and yet knowing we more often than not, if not always, distort what is actually before our eyes. It is this conundrum where our eyes need help, where our spirit needs aid, this is why the eyes of our hearts need the divine aid that prayer facilitates. It is this consideration of the need for divine aid I'm putting on each of you this morning that you share in this human conundrum, that you don't understand everything that you don't understand everything to do next in every relationship. Indeed, you unconfess that you even distort what sits before you. And it is this consideration then for divine aid, for knowing ourselves more clearly, understanding others that we associate with, understanding and perceiving well our challenges that lie before us and perceiving our circumstances when we confess we know we cannot truly. It is this need for divine aid that I want to look at with you for a few moments this morning from the perspective of Christ's approach to public ministry. In other words, as we examine this morning, verse, as you see, we're only going to examine verse 22. And I want us to notice from verse 22 the approach that our Lord takes toward public ministry. Pairing with it our own sense of, okay, here's Jesus in his baptism event, and then he's moving toward public ministry. What is it that he does in the approach to public ministry? As we examine our Lord's life, then think of our own situation as well in parallel. We face unknowns. We distort things that could even be known. In other words, we need divine aid. So, what do we do in facing challenges, in trying to discern what we so easily distort? In other words, I think what we see here is not only what Christ does for us, as we noted last week in baptism, as he was baptized with a baptism of sinners for us. But not only do we possess here, both in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, what Christ does for us, but we also have an example unto us. And it is that example component I want to to look at with you this morning. Put simply, I would say this way. If we were to examine the Gospels, as we're currently doing, at least with Luke, and as we continue for quite some time to look at our Lord's teaching and to follow His example through life, we would confess that, surely, that Jesus' teachings and even His actions Include footsteps for following. That is, His way of living teaches. This is where we'll see later where our Lord is caught in prayer. And the disciples, you remember what they say. We just confessed it a moment ago, the answer to their question. They see Him praying. And they say, from witnessing, Lord, teach us to pray. That is, his way of living instructs, his way of living teaches. So, with this first observation, I want us to consider, again, not only what Christ does for us, but what He has left as an example unto us as His people to follow, given that we have many unknowns about ourselves, others, life, decisions, contexts, and so forth. I want to make a couple observations, then, that are helpful for our instruction in these matters as we witness our Lord here in verse 22. The first observation of instruction that we see in the text here for, again, this sense of the conundrum for us of humanness, this sense of needing to act on the basis of what we know, yet what we know is incomplete. How then are we to act while we remain in ignorance? There is an example laid here by the Lord for how His people are to act. In time, in times of anxiety, times of challenge, and needs for greater clarity. The first observation of instruction so, we're simply gazing upon the life of our Lord and then receiving the instruction that it yields for our own sake. And that is simply this prayerfulness. The first observation of instruction that we see in the text here regarding our need for divine aid is our Lord's prayerfulness. Now, again, quite straightforwardly, verse 21 and verse 22, as we consider the observational instruction, that is, His life teaches us. His prayerfulness. Verse 24, now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Now, in this consideration of prayerfulness, right here at the very get-go of our Lord's public ministry, Luke portrays Him here as an individual in prayer. But all throughout his gospel, from this moment forward, Luke will consistently portray our Lord, which is a, a significant theme within Luke's gospel particularly, is that Jesus is a man of prayer. He displays a godly dependence upon the Father at every stage in his ministry. Again, if this observation of our Lord yields any bearing or instruction to us, it is prayerfulness. I rehearse for you just briefly all of the ways, and we'll get to them in time, but all of the various ways that Luke, throughout his gospel, portrays, for our sake, that Jesus was a man of prayer. You see one already, right here is his baptismal event, and we'll look at it a little bit more uh, fully in a few moments, but considering here just the act of Jesus praying at the moment of baptism. Baptism. In chapter 5, verse 16, you don't need to turn there. I'm simply going to give you a brief overview of how Luke portrays our Lord as a man of prayer. Great crowds are seeking the Lord in chapter 5, verse 16. And as they seek Him, He draws away into the wilderness for a time of prayer. By the time you get to chapter 6, so we're moving from chapter 3 to another portrait in chapter 5, to yet another portrait in chapter 6, where our Lord is on the cusp of selecting 12 apostles, disciples. What does he do in verse 12 of chapter 6, just before chapter 6, verse 13? He spends the entire night in prayer. That is, verse 12, he spends the entire night in prayer. In verse 13... He then selects 12 disciples. Again, a consideration of how does one act? Again, we're looking unto the Lord and then receiving as ourselves people of confusion. Decisions need to be made on a regular basis within our families, within our lives, on a moment-to-moment basis. Big decisions and little decisions. Life is made up of decisions. Well, how do we make them? Well, act on what you know. How much do I know? Not very much. How do I make a good decision? Prayer. Our Lord says, prayerfulness is a way in which one can act when they confess in a measure that they don't know what to do. Now, again, as we just look upon our Lord as a man of prayer, let it instruct us as to how we act in time. Consider beyond what he selects in the 12 disciples of chapter 6, verse 13, and chapter 9. There's another important moment within Luke's gospel. Peter is going to confess that Jesus is the Christ, but when does it take place after our Lord's season of prayer? The Mount Transfiguration, chapter 9, verse 28, when we find out that the Lord is the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets, the divine voice breaks from heaven and says, this is my son, listen to him. When does this important moment in redemptive history occur during a time of prayer. In chapter 11, so from 5 to 6 to 9 to 11, is Luke wants to portray that Jesus is a man of prayer. Chapter 11, I indicated to you before already, as the Lord was in a time of prayer, the disciples watching him pray, and then their hearts see that and say, Lord, teach us to pray. From chapter 11, you then join, yet again, the consistent portrait of our Lord as a man of prayer is in the Garden of Gethsemane, of which you know, where he enters into a time of anguish and intensity, and what does he do with it? But he goes to prayer. Luke notes, interestingly, for your sake, a time of anxiety, a time of great distress. What should you do, believer? Believer. What should you do? Luke notes for you very well. He went to the garden to pray, which is his custom. And this is the way he lived his life. This is the manner in which he dealt with his anxiety of distress. And then finally, after Gethsemane and prayer in the garden, he offers prayer, as you well know, on the cross in chapter 23. Father, forgive them. So again, in this portrait already of an observation of instruction is that Jesus displays the importance of prayerfulness, the importance of our being a humble and prayerful people dependent upon God in our difficulty. Jesus displays such not simply for himself. As you see here in baptism, he was praying. But it's not simply for himself, but it is to reveal to each of us through Luke's gospel that we as his people possess the same privilege and we ought to adapt the same pattern of life. Quite simply, we as believers are to be people of prayer. But I would ask, certainly in a further thought, is how many of us possess a different pattern? Again, noting well, many of you in times of transition, seeking where will I go next, what will I do next, wondering about this relationship, that relationship, this job opportunity, that job opportunity, again, with many uncertainties or unknowns or simple ignorance. I don't know how to see what's directly before me and how to act. Dealing with life's uncertainties, obstacles, and challenges, oftentimes, for each of us, though we know ourselves to be ill-equipped in handling such decisions, we express that frustration regularly to others. How often, nonetheless, is prayer the very last resort? It would seem if we paid close attention to the text, prayer would be first. We would pray to a sovereign God, a God who is able that we confess. I mean, why would we pray if God isn't sovereign? So we flee to a God who can, a God who does, a God who has. And yet, fleeing to Him is only when all else on our own endeavors seems to have failed. But as we see here in observing our Lord's approach toward public ministry, again, here the verse 23 saying about the age of 30, as we saw him last at age 12, now we're seeing him begin his ministry around age 30, according to verse 23. And as he's facing the challenges that are ahead of what he knows, which will be chapter 4 of what we get to, this time of testing, this time of challenge, of what he knows lies ahead. What is it that the first thing he does in approaching public ministry, in the overwhelming obedience that is before him, what is it that our Lord himself does? But he points us to prayerfulness as he prays. For that power which will enable, give clarity, yield heaven's help. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 as well gives you comfort at this very moment as you consider your own life lived in anxiety, uncertainty, unknowns. Maybe it's the political season, so everybody's up in a bunch of unknowns, worry, anxiety, and so forth. Who's going to be next? Going to be, how are they going to be in charge? Where's it going from here? And then everything from macro to micro challenges. Peter joins, certainly after this example, in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Again, another text of which we all possess and know, but how simply we choose to forget. Peter gives us this encouragement. As we witness in our Lord, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, right? Because we pray because He is mighty. We pray because He is sovereign. We shouldn't pray if He isn't. So, He calls us… Do you see what He's saying? It's, it's a movement of humility, Don't don't make prayer your last resort when all your efforts have failed. Rather, humble yourself in the beginning, up front. Acknowledge your own ignorance. Humble yourselves. Unto what? Unto the mighty hand of God. So that the proper time, in due season during this time of conflict that you're in. Yes, during this trial, during this challenge, during this difficulty, during this uncertainty. It is at this time you ought humble yourselves under not an impotent God, but the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, that is, this trial is only a season, It is an affliction, but a momentary one. That in due time or proper time, he, the mighty one, might exalt you. Therefore, he exhorts again, what should we do in this time of difficulty, persecution, trial, complexity, or ignorance? What should I do? He says, cast your anxiety on him. That's what you should do. Take that which just binds itself to your conscience, that which plagues and dogs your mind, that which keeps you up at night. Cast it upon the mighty hand of God, upon he who can, he who has, he who does. Cast it upon him. But what is the rationale? Or what right do I have to truly do that? With what comfort can I seek the Lord in prayer? Peter concludes, because he cares for you. That's the rationale. This is what we see. Not only our Lord do for us, but set an example unto us. Cast your anxieties on God because He does care for you. One author concludes, kind of writes about our need for divine aid in our life in order that we, the ignorant, might see our pathway more clearly or gather what is necessary. Really, walk by faith, not by anxiety. He concludes this way, quote, We have no kingdom sightings apart from divine provision. He's referencing that discussion in John 3 between Jesus and Nicodemus is the text that's at work here. How what stands right before Nicodemus he cannot see. The significance of the moment he is deaf to. We Have no kingdom sightings, that is the significance of the moment or truly what is at work in any given set of circumstances apart from divine provision. We are like those who stand at the outskirts of God's ways. That is, as you think of a situation, a a decision that must be made, we just fail to see what's really at work. Therefore, we turn anxious and we begin to strive. but the author concludes uh, continues this way therefore we are helped to learn how to attend every moment of activity every moment of challenge every step in providence with this pilgrim's prayer quote lord i can't see please open my eyes end quote this is what we see in our Lord upon the cusp of public ministry. The first thing we see in a pattern after him is a life of prayerfulness. But not only is prayerfulness an observable instruction from our passage this morning, that the very first thing our Lord does, and the text seems to be as he is emerging out of water of baptism, he was praying. Again, an immediate movement of our Lord. That is an observable instruction for our own lives. It's prayerfulness. But not only that, we are also instructed in the very same text, in the sequence of events as we observe, secondly, the divine response to our Lord's prayer. So, not only is prayerfulness this Observable instruction on our Lord's life, but so also is the divine response to our Lord's prayerfulness and observable instruction, not only for us as He did for us, but also unto us as we follow His pattern. Notice the divine response is one of blessing. And note that well as I'm exhorting you to prayerfulness, myself, unto prayerfulness. Note well then. In prayerfulness, heaven's response is one of blessing, blessing unto prayerfulness. We see this in two particular ways in the passage. If you look with me real quickly, again, verse 21 and 22, and then just kind of notice the sequence of how things are unfolding as Luke writes them for our sake. Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about the prayerfulness of our Lord giving way to a blessed reception from heaven and a word of affirmation from heaven is notice the timing That is, the provision of the Spirit upon the Son. Notice how it's happening. Verse 22 says that the Spirit descended on him. But notice the timing of the Spirit's descent. It was during his prayer. That is, after he had been baptized, past tense, and he was praying, that is, a present participle, that is, this is what was taking place, Luke is telling you. He's here, He's praying. And this is what they saw. during prayerfulness, the spirit descended. Do you see, I'm pointing toward heaven's response of the spirit upon the sun is in response directly to his prayer of dependency. In other words, it's very likely here in the sequence of the text, the sending forth of the Spirit upon the Son is the fulfillment of the request that Jesus is asking for, the empowering presence of the Spirit's anointing for His ministry. That is, what do we learn from this sequence of events that our Lord is in the act of prayer And then receives from heaven a benefit such as the Spirit's presence and empowering upon him. What do we receive from this? I would push two things. I think there are two things here. And the provision of the Spirit in response to the Son's prayer reveals two things additionally about our Father who is in heaven. For each of us, again, indeed this is unique to the Lord according to His work and redemption for us, yet it also is a word of instruction unto us as we see His actions. And as He prays and the Spirit descends, what are two additional aspects viewing this situation that are revealed to us about our Father? And that is number one, This picture of heaven's blessing upon the Son through the person of the Spirit in relationship to His prayerfulness is, number one, God loves His children. I know that's quite simple, that God loves His children. We may sing it, we may say it, and we do believe it, but oftentimes we also doubt it. Here in this text, as the Spirit is sent forth and the heavens are opened during the Son's prayer, we are witness to the Father's love for His Son. And as those hidden in Jesus Christ the Son, we also are the children whom are loved by the Father. We are those who are adopted into His family. We are named among the number of heaven's elect, and we are joined unto Christ who is our head. The Father loves also us. In this moment, if I could encourage you in prayerfulness of the Lord, our Father loves to hear the cries of the confused. Right now, what is it that you're confused about? I think we could probably litter about a hundred things down on a sheet somewhere, ranging again from insignificant things that might trip and annoy all the way to significant moments that are life-changing. If we learn from our Lord prayerfulness, let us learn from heaven's response that our Father loves to hear the cries of His children. Take your confusion, take your weakness, take your ignorance of the situation and cry out to God, trusting that through faith, He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. In this first picture of the answer, I think in the Father sending forth of the Spirit on the Son, what we recognize is that God loves His children and He loves to commune with them. This is what our Lord is doing here in the banks of the Jordan, communing with His Father. The second, I think, additional piece that this reveals in this moment of prayerfulness of the Son is that the Father indeed loves to commune with His children as we witness the Father and Son relationship through the person of the Holy Spirit here in bodily form of a dove. Secondly, we see that the Father loves to empower His children for obedience and holiness with the Spirit's presence. The Father loves. Do you believe that of your own life? In your weakness, in your confusion, in your ignorance, do you go to the Father? Do you confess in prayer what we had just recently said? Lord, I can't see. Please open my eyes. And do you believe that He delights in hearing? And not only hearing and communing, but in empowering you for obedience and holiness of life. Consider the besetting sin in your life. The weakness, the daily temptation, that dogged sin that seems never to be quite put away. The guilt that churns within because of our indulging it the guilt that continues. One stride up, ten strides back. The sense of helplessness, anger, bitterness that comes with continual sin. Do you believe as you gaze here upon the relationship of our Lord as the true Son of God and the Heavenly Father, who adores, loves the Son, in hearing the Son's request, do you believe that God loves also, as you are hidden in Christ the Son, that the Father loves to empower you over your sin? He loves to strengthen by His very own Spirit, you as His child, to increase obedience and holiness in obedience to His law. Do you believe The Father loves to empower, that He loves you, that He hears you, and that He answers you with power from heaven. This is what we see in our Lord's prayer and in the Father's divine blessing and affirmation unto the Son in the sending of the Spirit. Psalm 31, 24 encourages you likewise this very morning with the thought of our Lord in prayer receiving the blessing of the father psalm 3124 be strong let your heart take courage but again what's the rationale what's the rationale of psalm 3124 for me a believer for a christian who's hidden in the sun What is it in my weakness that I am exhorted to be strong and let my heart be courageous and not melt like wax? Upon what proof? Upon what grounds? Upon the truth that you can wait for the Lord who is sovereign, loving, and able. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Finally, the second, the second blessing of heaven's blessing to the Son, the second provision, that is the first word of affirmation in the son's prayerfulness, is the provision of the Spirit as we see. The Father loves his Son, he loves to commune with him, and he loves to empower him in obedience and holiness as He will indeed rely upon the Father and the Spirit's presence in chapter 4, in His time of wilderness temptation. Finally, we see the divine blessing upon our Lord, not only in the provision of the Spirit, but in the heavenly pronouncement. Again, verse 22, And the Holy Spirit, that is, while our Lord was praying, the Father heard, the Father loved, the Father empowered The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And provision number one is there. And provision number two within your text is right before you. A voice came from heaven. That is the divine voice. The word spoke. The divine voice came from heaven. So the heavens were opened, the Spirit descended, and then a voice came from heaven issuing this word. You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The final blessing, as I mentioned to you here in the text of the prayerfulness of the Son, is the heavenly pronouncement that Jesus is the blessed Son of God. A word of affirmation. I want to speak on this just twofold quickly. Number one, the heavenly pronouncement is yes here, uniquely unto Christ, as it is a divine commissioning. That is, he is the beloved Son, he is the Lord and servant of the covenant, who will then go into chapter four, and he will obey the Father completely and perfectly. He will obey the Father indeed perpetually in order to impute that obedience to you through faith. So yes, this word here from heaven is unique in its sense of divine commissioning upon Jesus. That there is no other Son to whom the Father is well pleased. There is no perfect Son but Christ Himself that indeed is the divine commission here. But yet also, consider secondly, the divine blessing also expresses to you and to me the inseparable graces of the Spirit of God with the Word of God. This is the twofold benefit that Heaven provides the Son in His prayerfulness. The observation of instruction, that is, as we indeed admit, this is unique in one manner unto our Lord's anointing for what our Lord will do, of which none of us could do, yet all of us rest in now through faith. That is His work alone. We can't mimic it. We can't redo it. It is to Him alone. Yet also, we observe from this uniqueness a broader general principle that we see ourselves in, and it is simply this. The inseparable graces of the Word of God and the Spirit of God is indeed that which will encourage, empower, and sustain not only our Lord through the course of His ministry, but it is also that divine blessing that encourages, empowers, and sustains God's people In every age until the consummation. That is, God has given us in our ignorance that we must confess and humbly cry out to Him. He has provided us with all that is necessary for our life and godliness. He has provided us with His Word, His divine Word that comes forth from heaven without error and without fallibility. It cannot speak error. It cannot lead us astray. And it is that grace unto us that we hear on Lord's Day and provide it in our homes to meditate day and night. But He has also given us, in union to Christ through faith, His own Spirit, uniting us to the Son, empowering and sustaining us for perseverance and holiness. Here in the divine blessing, the Father pronounces upon the Son that He alone is the true Son of God. Yet we witness, it is the inseparable graces that continue in all of the children. The grace of His Spirit and the grace of His Word. In conclusion, let me suggest this. As human beings, that is, that is those who suffer from limitations, sinful decisions, anxieties that frighten us, frustrations that anger us. Let us look upon this text afresh. Repent of our sin, of making prayer our very last option. Let us pray To our Father who art in heaven, let us follow obediently by meditating upon His Word. Let us be a people who don't grieve the Spirit, but through grace rely upon Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this text that on the one hand is our Lord's work for us as those who are hidden in Adam, and yet as we are now through faith hidden in him and his obedience, it is a word of instruction unto us. Or how often we doubt your hearing us from heaven. We doubt that sense of power that is connected to prayer. We continue to be a people who would rather stumble in weakness and anxiety and frustration, believing that our own physical efforts can overcome, whereas prayer seems to stagnate and not provide heaven's blessing. Let us look upon this text afresh, seeing indeed our Lord's example as a man of prayer all throughout Luke's gospel. Let us, Lord, yet again follow him through faith, relying upon your Spirit's grace. Receiving and digesting your word, let us be a people of prayerful concern. Thank you for hearing. Thank you for answering, guiding us and granting unto us wisdom so generously where we lack. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You remain seated. Heads bow there. I'll let you respond immediately in a moment of prayer individually. Invite the worship team up during this time, and in a moment we'll respond corporately in song. as they put the Lord's Prayer back up on the screen here just for a moment would you stand with us we'll recite the Lord's Prayer together once again and then we'll close in song after that this is such a good tool